Section 4 of The Spirit of American Literature This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Spirit of American Literature by John Albert Macy Section 4 Emerson Part 1 some thinkers are so candid and so wise in formulating their relations in life that they become the best critics of themselves in their generation what a man a hundred years later may say of them is truest when it is but a slight revision of their own account of their personal destinies and surroundings emerson is one of these completely self-expressed recorders of life did anyone else ever more thoroughly obey the socratic injunction Emerson epitomizes his era and his neighborhood. His mind is open to the prevailing winds of thought from all quarters. As he says of Swedenborg, he lies abroad upon his times. His significance absorbs a multitude of lesser men. His eminence grows more imposing as the ephemeral, which was his daily partner, sinks out of sight. In his latter years, he made some historic notes of life and letters in New England, to which one has but to add for him quorum pars maxima fuit, in order to make it the best possible introduction to his life and writings. The key to the period, the period of his young manhood, appeared to be, he says, that the mind had become aware of itself. After Kant, those who pursued philosophy analyzed their instrument of thought, scrutinized with a mixture of credulous wonder and skepticism the mental ground on which religions and philosophies are erected. Emerson, poet, mystic, ethical enthusiast, is an alert critic of his own intellectual processes, a keen judge of contemporary modes of thought and of the general motives of human conduct. Whoever tries to account for his genius, to rearrange it in the intellectual landscape, to complete it here and depress it there by latter standards and by right of historical knowledge, will find that Emerson has estimated his leading ideas and his place in a certain moment of human thought with astonishing insight. The chapter on idealism in nature is a compact and lucid summary of the type of philosophy then prevalent. You will look in vain for a better statement of it in any latter-day history of philosophic development. Emerson's lecture on the Times, read when he was thirty-eight years old, and his lecture on the New England Reformers, delivered three years later, place local events and ideas then dominant in the position that they occupy as seen from our perspective. His intellectual horizon often seems to be at the same distance from him as from us. Much that we would say of him, he has said of the forces that influenced him and included him. Between Emerson's time and ours intervenes a revolution that came to its crisis about the year 1860, the complete triumph of the scientific spirit in all minds that are abreast of their age and in fullest possession of current culture. This revolution has entirely reordered philosophic and economic theory and has made transcendental idealism as obsolete as scholastic theology. 
though, to be sure, there are multitudes of men who still live in antique faiths and ignore the forefront of human thought. To see Emerson clearly, we must pass back through this revolution and emerge on his side of it. Without that act of the historical imagination, we shall misunderstand our differences from him. Before Emerson's time, Kant's laborious and honest critique, based on the revolutionary rationalism of Hume, had laid the foundations for a scientific study of mind. But the world was not ready to carry its implications out to their disconcerting conclusion, which is the destruction of religious and philosophic myth. In a sense, Kant himself was not ready. He hedged a little, and his followers hedged still more. The age was romantic, and philosophy had to make concessions to religion. In the solid structure which Kant so cautiously and courageously erected, he left a breach open toward vague unknowables. Ethical and political philosophy, called upon by the practical powers of church and state to assume some of the intellectual police functions which liberalism had wrested from religion, entered through the breach and took the Kantian stronghold. Post-Kantian philosophy became a wonder-wander world of conventional ethics in poetic motley and learned garb, a solemn masquerade in which Kaiser, Pope, Banker, and Landlord were honored guests. An unknowable absolute and the Christian deity merged in a god too indistinct for anyone to be skeptical about, and too impersonal to be held responsible for the world of fact. The world of fact was a very dismal place. Emerson, confirmed optimist, described it with a bold hostility that no recent indictment could exceed. In the law courts, he says, crimes of fraud have taken the place of crimes of force. The stockholder has stepped into the place of the warlike baron. The nobles shall not any longer, as feudal lords, have power of life and death over the churls, but now in another shape as capitalists shall in all love and peace eat them up as before. Nay, government itself becomes the resort of those whom government was invented to restrain. In Boston, where Emerson is now a respectable local hero, the barons are stronger than ever and their vassals, disguised as state militia, are defending the castle of seven per cent in the name of government, law, and order. Emerson had remarkable flashes of insight into the motives of a social period which has not yet terminated. His way of saying what he saw was seldom so plain as the foregoing passage. It usually took a symbolic metaphorical shape. Things are in the saddle, and ride mankind. In England and America, conservatism, that is, the interests of those in comfortable circumstances of property, was in complete control. Its fingers clutched the fact, says Emerson, and it will not open its eyes to see a better fact. Commercial authority permitted liberalism and humanitarianism so long as they did not threaten to upset the existing regime of plutonic tyranny. Authority encouraged philosophy, 
so long as philosophy remained too difficult or too unworldly to be dangerous. In Germany, the philosopher was taught to utter discreetly and in innocuously ab abstract terms any conclusion of his metaphysic which might seem to question the authority of king and priest. It was Hegel's glorification of monarchy, the friendliness to political reaction which is inherent in his philosophy, that made him in due time the official voice of Prussian wisdom. In France, the failure of the revolution and the monstrous Napoleonic drama had left thought depressed, cynical, and factional. In New England, the austerity of Puritan ethics was a cloak for commercial trickery, which even our brutal times cannot regard with moral satisfaction, and which we have therefore agreed, out of timid tenderness for old families, to forget or deny. The Boston merchant was a strong supporter of slavery. Radical philosophy was either impotent or insincere. And education, nominally popular, was in the hands of ministers, lawyers, and the well-to-do. In the American scholar, which tells what education ought to be, Emerson has revealed the poverty and narrowness of the schools of his time, and in the lecture called The Conservative, he has summed up with marvelous power the influence of commercial interest upon thought. The conservative assumes sickness as a necessity, and his social frame is a hospital. His total legislation is for the present distress, a universe in slippers and flannels, with bib and pap spoon swallowing pills and herb tea. Sickness gets organized as well as health, and vice as well as virtue. Now that a vicious system of trade has existed so long, it has stereotyped itself in the human generation, and misers are born. And now that sickness has got such a foothold, leprosy has grown cunning, has got into the ballot-box. The lepers outvote the clean. Society has resolved itself into a hospital committee, and all its laws are quarantine. If any man resist and set up a foolish hope he has entertained as good against a general despair, society frowns on him shuts him out of her opportunities, her granaries, her refectories, her water and bread, and will serve him a sexton's turn. Conservatism takes as low a view of every part of human action and passion. Its religion is just as bad, a lozenge for the sick, a dolorous tune to beguile the distemper, mitigations of pain by pillows and remedies, pardons for sin, funeral honors, never self-help, renovation, and virtue. Its social and political action has no better aim, to keep out wind and weather, to bring the week and the year about, and make the world last our day, not to sit on the world and steer it, not to sink the memory of the past in glory of a new and more excellent creation, a timid cobbler and patcher, it degrades whatever it touches. The cause of education is urged in this country with the utmost earnestness. On what ground? Why on this? That the people have the power, and if they are not instructed to sympathize with the intelligent, reading, trading, and governing class, inspired with a taste for the same competitions and prizes, 
they will upset the fair pageant of judicature and perhaps lay a hand on the sacred muniments of wealth itself and new distribute the land religion is taught in the same spirit the contractors who were building a road out of baltimore some years ago found the irish laborers quarrelsome and refractory to a degree that embarrassed the agents and seriously interrupted the progress of the work the corporation were advised to call off the police and build a catholic chapel which they did the priests presently restored order and the work went on prosperously such hints to be sure are too valuable to be lost if you do not value the sabbath or other religious institutions give yourself no concern about maintaining them they have already acquired a market value as conservators of property and if priest and church members should fail the chambers of commerce and the presidents of the banks the very inholders and landlords of the county would muster with fury to their support by emerson's time a few thinkers in america and elsewhere had discovered that the high phrases of the american revolution had been but catchwords to enlist the support of the people in a war to transfer the ownership of america from british landlords and traders to american landlords and traders school church and politics conspired to keep the people worshipping mythically noble forefathers and cheering loudly for the shadow of rights whose substance they had never embraced from these conditions philosophy and such religious aspiration as had broken free from the oldest conventions took refuge in an idealistic account of life which left much of life out and created for itself a stronghold amid the clouds the romantic spirit absorbed the best minds of the time for only in romance was man free or at least unconscious of his chains most of the eloquent expression of the day in england and america and germany is wholly in romantic terms at the opening of the nineteenth century fichte a romantic in scientific guise was the leading figure in german philosophy hegelism was to follow but was not yet ripe for its holy metternichian alliances with the kaiser and the fatherland that is baker and landlord against the revolutionary spirit fichte had had his quarrels with the clergy and had been routed from his position in the university of jena in berlin he joined the literary romantics toned down his atheism and by his patriotic eloquence at the time of the napoleonic invasion he became a national hero thus this ethical idealism achieved popularity it was carried to england by coleridge and carlyle and came to america by way of carlyle's writings and james marsh's american edition of coleridge's aids to reflection these works are not pure fichtean but a medley of various german post-kantians in them however fichte is dominant and his influence is the most clearly discernible of the various philosophies that underlie new england transcendentalism and the work of emerson in the sentimentally ethical universe which it pleased fichte to create high souls could escape from the world of fact and find at least two yearnings of human nature well satisfied the desire to contemplate the universe as an aesthetically admirable whole 
and the heroic wish to be held morally responsible. This ethical and aesthetic transcendentalism drew up into itself the moral enthusiasms of the leading imaginations, though they now and again descended to the earth to attack a specific abuse like black slavery. They were in the main aloof, serenely self-centered and ineffectual. They were wont, as Emerson said of them, and in his letters to Carlyle he frankly and with sadly smiling regret includes himself among the fruitless flowers of speculation, they were wont to make severe moral demands on every one, and yet were not good fighters in the common battles of life. Every philosopher's beliefs are in part a construction of his own temperament. He assimilates current ideas, and is the product of his time but he selects from what is about him the thing that most fits his nature. Emerson could not have composed a lifeless philosophy even from the most inhuman development of post-Kantian metaphysics. He had little sympathy in his most vigorous moments with such a view as a British Hegelian expresses, that the special work of philosophy is to comprehend the world, not to try to make it better. It is, however, significant perhaps fortunate, that the kind of idealism which came to him and his neighbors most powerfully, reinforced by the early health of Carlyle's ethical intensity, was the moral universe of Fichte. According to this philosophy, the real world is a limitless arena in which the soul can realize its duties by conflict. Struggle is the source of morality. Virtue means good action, the overcoming of something in external nature or human nature. Duty is the only true thing in the world of phenomena. Emerson's phrase reflecting this idea is the sovereignty of ethics. Things are what we ought to make them, and that is the only sense in which they really exist. Such is Fichte's simple message, and it is central in Emerson's thought whether or not he knew or cared for Fichte's complete works. The idea was in the air, and it was so well adapted to Emerson's genius that it shows no more signs of having been transplanted from alien soils than the New England apple. For Emerson, philosophy retained its old meaning, love of wisdom. If it have no influence on conduct, it is worthless. If it have a bad influence on conduct, it is bad philosophy. He treats academic metaphysics with mild irony. Who has not looked into a metaphysical book but what sensible man ever looked twice? Ask what is best in our experience, and we shall say a few pieces of plain dealing with wise people. Our conversation once and again has apprised us that we belong to better circles than we have yet beheld, that a mental power invites us whose generalizations are more worth for joy and effect than anything that is now called philosophy or literature. That phrase holds his own value. His generalizations are more worth for joy and effect than much that is now called philosophy and literature. Matthew Arnold tells us that Emerson is a great teacher of life, but not a great man of letters, and not a philosopher, because he made no system. 
these distinctions are clear and just if we grant the definitions of the terms used but emerson like every man of genius strains academic definitions and instead of holding to their tarnished uses we find that to learn what he is demands a new understanding of terms that academic corrosions must be scoured off and the true color of the metal revealed what is philosophy at the present time it seems to be the study of dead men's thoughts pursued by small groups of teachers in those institutions which emerson held are ludicrously called universities and not participated in to any great extent except by students who intend in turn to become teachers but what historically is philosophy the answer may be found in a posthumous book by william james a true successor of emerson in that he also was a lover of wisdom in the old humane sense and relieved us of much accumulated metaphysic by athletically pitching it out the window a view of anything is termed philosophic just in proportion as it is broad and connected with other views and as it uses principles not proximate or intermediate but ultimate and all-embracing to justify itself any very sweeping view of the world is a philosophy in this sense an intellectualized attitude toward life professor dewey well describes the constitution of all the philosophies that actually exist when he says that philosophy expresses a certain attitude purpose and temper of conjoined will and intellect rather than a discipline whose boundaries can be neatly marked off in a german historic handbook of philosophy we find much space given to xenophanes a satirist a greek alexander pope and much space given to parmenides a didactic poet these amateur thinkers of an elder age hold a place in philosophy but the poetic preacher who wrote the conduct of life is a footnote person in the same handbook jonathan edwards who erected his superstitions into a magnitudinous if not an architectural pile is an admitted philosopher but emerson whose essay on fate is alive and inspiring after half a century of disputation on the free will puzzle is but reluctantly acknowledged as a philosopher in the official roles of learning then a poetic fragment that is very old and not read by anybody but professors is philosophy and a system though it be a tissue of superstition and bad reasoning especially if it be written obscurely is philosophy but a modern poetic preacher whose writings are drenched with philosophy and whose philosophy has secured a vicarious immortality by its allegiance with literary beauty is not entitled to the mystic degree the hall of philosophy at harvard is named after emerson and that is a good sign perhaps the words of the american scholar may in time be understood even in cambridge emerson is one of the few men in the nineteenth century whose discourses on philosophic subjects remain inspiring through many changes of belief moreover it is emerson who with goethe and carlyle distilled the quintessential value of some modes of greek and german thought which in their original system have fallen to the ground he was a humanist 
he restored philosophy to the uses of life. He borrowed Plato from the schoolmen long enough to prove that Socrates was a human being. Emerson's failure to systematize may be due in part to his sane perception that system does not ensure truth, that this perplexing world will not contract itself and comfortably revolve within the geometric sphere of any logical scheme of thought. Emerson is like Plato, whose dialogues, though they may be systematized by critics, are not in themselves systematic, but are conversational and suggestive discourses. This modern lyceum lecturer talks about one broad general subject at a time, fills each theme with compressed, but not dried, matter, drawn from all manner of sources, leaves his auditor with the net results of many philosophies, and passes on without a formal conclusion. Like Bacon, he is an all-inquiring tourist in the region of other minds. He reads for his private uses, and is far from what he calls a psychophantic and mendicant reader. It is because he dips from so many streams of thought, because he condenses an essay into a paragraph, and then inserts the paragraph into any theme that will hold it conveniently, that he is charged with being disconnected and deficient in organic structure. The truth is, his work is singularly unified, not only section for section, essay for essay, but regarded as a whole from his first lecture to his last. Matter so homogeneous as his may break up into globules like spilt mercury, but only contact is required to make instant adherence and fluid reassemblage. For forty years he preached the same sermon. Character, conduct, spiritual energy, courageous will, resilient belief, and confident illusion. Erroneous vitality is better than dead accuracy. We have a certain instinct that where there is a great amount of life, though gross and piquant, it has its own checks and purifications, and will be found at last in harmony with moral laws. His laudation of the will to live is a reaction against the old theological idea that will is a deplorable fact, and that it is the cause of the individual's sinful unfitness in a universe perfect except for the unique vileness of man, and so the explanation, which does not explain, of our inharmoniousness with an omniscient and beneficent God. Seen in the light of the philosophies that developed after him, Emerson, a gentle country parson, is not unlike a Nietzsche to the Calvinistic Schopenhauers. But necessarily the terms in which he expresses his revolt against the degrading humilities and soul-sickness of theology are the terms of the religion which he has outgrown. In spite of our imbecility and terror and the universal decay of religion, etc., etc., the moral sense reappears today with the same morning newness that has been from of old the fountain of beauty and strength. The source and master of the universe is still the God of Jacob, a force for righteousness fighting on our side of the battle, though he appears under the frigidly impersonal designation Oversoul. Emerson falls into confusions of thought. His incurable optimism simply cannot dispose of the problem of evil. 
yet these failings are only the inherent weakness of the entire idealistic philosophy of his time and of the revised christianity known as unitarianism none of the orderly exponents of idealistic monism ever got round the stump of vice and misery evil is the germ of decay which eats through all their systems the main difference between emerson's confession of faith and the elaborate reasonings of spinoza of fichte of hegel is that they creating and defending systems which pretend to completeness must explain inconsistencies away whereas emerson blandly accepts inconsistencies a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds adored by little statesmen and philosophers and divines the greater inconsistencies too terrible to be foolish emerson ignores omit the negative propositions he says an injunction which is abhorrent to an honest intrepid mind and which of course he vigorously disobeyed himself it is doubtful if he compared his essay on fate with his chapter on idealism pared them down to their issues so that their essential contradiction might be seen idealism sees the world in god it beholds the whole circle of persons and things of actions and events of country and religion not as painfully accumulated atom after atom in an aged creeping past but as one vast picture which god paints on the instant eternity for the contemplation of the soul and in the essay on worship he says strong men believe in cause and effect the man was born to do it and his father was born to be the father of him and of his deed and by looking narrowly you shall see that there was no luck in the matter but it was all a problem in arithmetic or an experiment in chemistry the curve of the flight of the moth is preordained and all things go by number rule and weight an entire everlastingly finished universe painted once for all on eternity precludes the possibility that man can will anything or introduce a particle of novelty into the world by desiring one thing more than another yet the essay on fate is a bold problem-cutting declaration that the world is continually remaking that the human will however small is the very treasure of life gallantly contending against the universe of chemistry and the eloquent peroration addressed to blessed unity and beautiful necessity magnificently begs the question the emersonian paradoxes fate has its lord limitation its limits power attends and agonizes fate the hero masters destiny by believing in it fate involves melioration these are no verbal quips but a sincere account of the matter for the matter itself the free will determinism problem is a paradox foisted on life by technical philosophy and by the baseless dogmas of religion emerson is inconsistent because life is inconsistent and a fair attempt to describe it from one point of observation assumed to-day will challenge to-morrow's statement of another aspect the disciplines of life instruct us that good thoughts are no better than good dreams unless they be executed yet the end of the essay on success 
a sermon to chide hasty activity and that spirit in american life which is condensed in the abominable motto do it now concludes with this approval of the static contemplative ideal the inner life sits at home and does not learn to do things nor value these facts at all tis a quiet wise perception it loves truth because it is itself real it loves right it knows nothing else but it makes no progress it lies in the sun and broods on the world emerson does not say that this is the only good ideal but he phrases it strongly enough to show that there for the day for the purpose of that essay his heart is at home emerson gives the antidote to each moral or immoral overdose his inconsistencies show violently when single sentences are confronted with other sentences from distant parts of his work inherently he is as consistent as the human being ever is who tries to tell how god made the world and is managing it at the present difficult hour emerson would have us grasp the metaphysical nettle and rob it of its sting it is life we are bent on not problems whatever the ultimate constitutions of the world we know what plain human virtues are necessary to go bravely and profitably through life we cannot dispel evil by wishing it away as emerson seems to say in some of his healthful high noon wed sings with the sun but we can see what may be made of evil how much of it may be disregarded, evaded, and overcome. This page from Emerson and Carlyle and Fichte was written centuries ago by Epictetus. We can try our muscles on evil and turn it to account, thus realizing and reaffirming the law of compensation. End of section 4 Recording by Laurie Arsenault, Maine